Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. The decision of the Americans to withdraw their troops on a timetable ending on September the 11th has given the extremists a cue to step up their campaign. There are scenes of panic and pandemonium at Kabul airport today as desperate people pour onto the runway trying to flee the country. As for the Afghans that have worked in various roles for the US, it's going to be a much tougher journey to get out of the country. Not much of a lead-in or a read-in needed. The Taliban now in full control of the nation of Afghanistan. It has overtaken Kabul and uh, apparently renamed the whole country the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Jack Murphy, former Ranger, former SF, spent some time in Afghanistan. What do you think of this? It's it's, you're watching history play out in real time. And even maybe more to the point, you're watching the erasure of history. Uh, 20 years of history just kind of gone in a flash, almost as if it didn't happen. Uh, We're right back to where we were 20 years ago uh, with the Taliban in control of Afghanistan. I mean, it is going to raise all sorts of questions. We're going to be talking about it for a long time. Uh, All the veterans out there are going to live with this and ask themselves these questions probably for the rest of their lives is what did it mean? What does this mean? What does this experience mean? What does it mean militarily and politically, but also what does it mean personally for me? And what does it mean morally for us? Um, I, I suppose I would just say to the veterans out there, um, try to rise above that and, you know, understand that you are a Marine Corps corporal or a squad leader in the 101st. This isn't your fault. 
you know, you did not make these decisions and you gave your best. Um, Afghanistan is what it is, man. You know, just uh, don't beat yourself up too much. Don't beat up your teammates too much over all of this and, and just take it easy on yourselves in the, in the coming months. And I know a lot of guys are, are hurting out there right now. Let's zero in right to what you just, just got done speaking about. How does this affect you? Like, what do you feel about this? Because you were there. And let's even start with that. Tell me where you were when you were there. I know it's in your memoirs, Murphy's Law, great book. Um, but uh, tell me about your experience there and what you feel personally about this. I was there what feels like a million years ago. Uh, it was 2004. Uh, this was during that time frame where it was after the initial invasion where we had secured quote unquote victory. And things were relatively quiet in Afghanistan at that time. There was not too much going on. I was there with Third Ranger Battalion. Uh, we were doing some reconnaissance missions. We did some direct action missions. There were a couple of Taliban guys we went after, but I mean, honestly, we were looking for work. Uh, we were rangers looking for a job and no one really knew what the future was for Afghanistan. Uh, I recall there's even conversations between some of the officers in my unit of saying, Hey, if there aren't any more terrorists to go after, then we should start going after the drugs, right? Let's start going after the poppies and the opium and all that sort of stuff. So like literally the, the soldiers on a ground level, were like looking for a mission. We were looking for things to do. Um, and just this uh, past Friday, I interviewed uh, Tony Brooks, who was a 275 Ranger, also in Afghanistan, a little bit after I was, 2005. But he was telling very much the same story when he was there with 2nd Ranger Battalion, that like they did absolutely nothing up until um, Operation Red Wings and the and Marcus Luttrell's patrol got compromised and Turbine 33 got shot down. So like him, he and I were in Afghanistan largely the same, in the same time frame. Uh, a very similar experience, it sounds like, that things were kind of quiet at that time. Now, this is what I've heard in other interviews that is just so amazing to me. But it's like, it sounds like we went in, the Taliban just sort of vanished. I mean, they, they, we didn't ever get a chance to engage with them too heavily for any prolonged amount of time, as evidenced by what I just heard from you, as evidenced by what I've heard from other veterans over there. They never really stood toe to toe with us, went fisticuffs and fought this thing out, a la World War II style or a la other wars and conflicts. But from your observations, from your working with Afghan locals, talk to me about that. Was it that they were never really gone? They just didn't pick up guns and shoot a mighty military force like we were when we were there and they were just playing a long game and waiting for us to eventually leave like we're doing this week? Or... Was it that they left the nation, waited on the borders, and then decided to come back and fill the vacuum once we left? But what did you experience with the locals there? Why is it that they can't hold the line or refuse to stand up and fight for their local, regional, provincial capitals? Well, that's a that's a huge question to to unpack. Um, you know, my own experience working there was again f- fairly brief and quite a while ago. I was working with Afghan police officers. Uh, that we were training up a, you know, quote unquote, Afghan SWAT team in Kaust province. And um, they were sort of what you would expect. I mean, we didn't have like problems with them. They were, they were okay guys. We worked with them, but you're dealing, you're working in, in, in a third world country. Their marksmanship needed to be tightened up. Um, they, they were definitely were not on the level of what we would expect from 
police officers or soldiers in a Western country. But as far as why they didn't hold, I mean, that's a that's a big topic and there's probably no uniform answer. A big part of it, of course, is we went in there, uh, we presented and we represented a foreign imposition on Afghanistan that the local people resented that they, they didn't, you know, having a bunch of white people inside your country feels a lot like colonization, you know, even if that's not the intent behind it. Um, the local people certainly view it that way. We, we would feel the same way if, you know, something happened here in America and, you know, the Chinese government is like, oh, we're going to send some troops to like help you guys out, you know, and, and now you have the Chinese military patrolling American streets like we wouldn't put up with that. So there, there was the aspect of us simply being a foreign imposition and, and the mere presence of Americans gives the locals somewhere to project their anger and frustration and rage over the years. And it gives the Taliban something likewise to oppose, to recruit for the, hey, let's get these guys out of here. Then at the same time, you have the central government of Afghanistan that the locals saw as also kind of alien. Like they, they never really had any loyalty to a central government uh, in Kabul. Uh, they saw their government, the, the government we largely created as being predatory and corrupt and not being representative of their interests. Uh, going back to the old taxation without representation type of argument. I mean, I'm, I'm making I'm making very broad generalizations here because this is a, a topic that's going to fill volumes uh, and already does. So I think you combine these these things together and it begins to explain why uh, the Afghan military didn't hold. And and now on top of that, you have other problems um, again that, that the endemic corruption. The uh, soldiers on the front lines were not being supplied with water, ammunition, food, gasoline, all that sort of logistical support that a military needs. Uh, this was the same thing that happened in Iraq back in 2014, that even the, the good soldiers who are willing to fight, if you're not getting more bullets and you're not getting more water, I mean, you, it's only, you can only hold out for so long. And all these things combine with one another and... There's enough blame to go around. There's going to be a lot of finger pointing in the years to come, but I, I don't know what, what else do you want to get it, get into Phil? I mean, this is, this is a complicated topic. Just the multi-layered answer you gave there, I think shows how complex this is and that we're not dealing with uh, black and white. Um, this would be a head scratcher for the decades. Yeah. I would also just point out, I mean, the Taliban were already like sort of de facto in control of like 12 districts when the withdrawal began. Uh, a lot of these, like the, the, the what's happened over the last couple of weeks, it's being kind of portrayed as like a guerrilla war or some sort of a, a, a conflict against the Afghan military. But really, these people were locals. They, the, the Taliban are local people, and they just did almost like a relief in place with the ANA as the Afghan military just kind of dissolved and laid down their arms in, in most cases, but not all. Um, and the Taliban just took control of the regions that they were already in. So like even looking at it as a, as a war is maybe the wrong uh, frame of reference. Last question is about how life changes over there. And I can't help but recall another interview I did recently with a DOD intelligence contractor, great guy by the name of Pete Turner, spent about 70 months of his life in combat zones. And, you know, he compared extracting the Taliban from a region of Afghanistan to going into Napa Valley and asking the grape growers to tell you where the Californians are because you want to get rid of the Californians. 
we look at it from with Western values and with our Western eyes as being horrific. Women can't go to school. Women can't be outside uh, unescorted. Women have to be completely covered. Uh, daughters must marry uh, into forced marriages and things. I guess my question is, with the Taliban taking over, does this change life for a lot of the people? Or are, are there tons of Afghanis that are just going to go, okay, we have a new leader. It's the Taliban now. But life for them will go on and they pretty much won't care about the Taliban taking over. Is this as big of a deal as we're making it out to be to the rural Afghani farmer or somebody that you would have come in contact with? Well, maybe it's a little bit of both. I I believe life will change for them. But, you know, the whole premise of our war uh, or our counterinsurgency approach, we start off with this assumption that the insurgents are seen as illegitimate and the government is seen as legitimate by the people of that country. This clearly was not the case in Afghanistan. They saw the Taliban as more legitimate than the government in Kabul. So a lot of the people of Afghanistan, a lot of people uh, in the Afghan military did not have any huge issue with the Taliban, which goes to explain how this, how and why this happened as quickly as it did. It goes to, again, like you, you said, uh, looking at the conflict through Western eyes, that the, the people of Afghanistan simply don't see things the way we do, and they, they never did, and, and we're not going to. Right on, ma'am. Well, you know, your two cents always spends like a buck with me, buddy. I really appreciate, (laughs) uh, you know, everything that you've done, the sacrifices you've made for our country, but certainly all your contributions uh, in helping tell this story and keeping us informed. Can't thank you enough. We can always read more about Jack Murphy and uh, articles of his on connectingvets.com. And uh, if I can, real quick plug for the book, you want to hear about more what it was like to uh, be in the 375 and be in Afghanistan. You got some, a book with some great pictures called Murphy's Law, and that's available everywhere you get books, including a badass cover of you standing in the smoke with your guns looking off. It, it offers a, a snapshot of, of Afghanistan at that time. And I'll, I'm also going to be working on some articles for connecting vets on this subject, of course. I'm kind of reaching out to veterans right now, getting some different viewpoints about everything that's been going on. Jack Murphy, Army veteran, ConnectingVets.com reporter. Always appreciate your time, bro. Thank you, Phil. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.
The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts.